Good morning. So as we continue the study in Philippians, if you'd like to open to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'll give you a second there. Pastor Tyler will be delivering the message today. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let me read it. You can follow along. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lord, it's sweet to pray as we begin to hear your word proclaimed. And interestingly, the pastor proclaiming your word today is the pastor and his family who we're praying for as they head off into, into potentially a new direction as they head to Maine. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the Walden family, that you would protect them, that you would open their eyes to uh, your desire there in, uh, in Maine. And Lord, if it is your will, he would be the next pastor. We would uh, ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts now and our minds to this truth, this truth that we need. We need your scriptures daily. We need to hear it. And as we come together in corporate worship, Lord, may you get the glory as we lift up our thoughts and our heart to you. And Jesus, may you be bigger to us as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen. A sweet morning to be worshiping with you all. It's it's considering transitions often bittersweet um, from your prayers, and I, I almost don't feel like I need to to preach this sermon after that last song we just said. It, it walked through the entire text, and hopefully that that reminder of who Christ is and, and what He has done has prepared your heart to hear the word preached, but um, do something maybe differently than we've done before. I just ask you, uh, I'm going to open us in prayer, but I ask you for just the next 10 seconds or so to just pray to yourself and, and prepare, prepare uh, to hear the word as we hope to behold Christ. Let's bow our heads and, and prepare our hearts to hear God's word.
Heavenly Father, the text this morning is weighty. It is patient and kind and merciful as it points us to Christ. Lord, we're reminded that, uh, Lord, He was humiliated, that He might be glorified. Lord, that He descended, that He might ascend. And even now, He's ruling and reigning, and He alone is our hope. Lord, I pray that this morning your church would not hear me. They would hear your word as you would have it preached. Lord, I pray that as a body of believers, we would love you all the more, cherish you all the more, delight in your son all the more. God, would you help us behold your glorious son this morning as we hear your word. It is in his name, the name above all names that we pray. Amen. Well, I imagine you've heard the quote before, the phrase that you are a product of your environment, that what you experience, what you intake, what you observe shapes how you perceive the world and how you respond to various situations and circumstances. I think we could all agree that there's some truth to this old adage. We often behave like our parents. Uh, in a middle school environment, it sometimes dictates what's cool or how we think we should act or behave. Even now as adults, uh, who we spend time with and how we spend our time impacts our perception of the world around us. I think this has always been the case. This was the case when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church Philippians. I think the exhortation of our text today was significant to the health and holiness of the church there at Philippi. And I think it's significant to the health and holiness of our church today. You see, what was modeled in the society of Paul's day when he wrote this letter was a pride and a spirit that sought the advancement of self over the advancement of others. You could spend about 15 seconds on Facebook or in the news, and that's exactly what you would see. It's the great proclamation and heralding of personal opinion and self-promotion. That's what surrounds us. And the problem with this learned behavior from our environment and our society is that it's the antithesis to the gospel. It's not what Christ desires for his blood-bought blood church. It's the exact opposite of what Christ modeled. You see, disunity and dissension are a great danger and threat to the church. And we'll see this morning as we look at Philippians 2 that from the scriptures, humility promotes unity as we behold Christ, that as we look to Christ, live like Christ, that we will ultimately set aside our preferences and our opinions for the sake of the unity of the church and the glory of God. So let's pick up, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 one more time. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, uh, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Our text this morning begins with a conjunction. Your Bible probably says, therefore, or so, or then. And that's important for us as we study this passage, because we need to look at what is Paul referring to. He's saying that as a result of what I've previously communicated to you, I want you to consider the following. So as critical and thoughtful students of the Bible, we must ask the question, what is Paul referring to? What is the there for? And he's actually pointing back to last week's passage, back to verse 27. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul is telling the church there to, that their aim in life is to live a life worthy of the gospel, that their salvation is to count for something, it's to result in something, that the gospel living, the gospel living is evidenced by or seen outwardly by a people, a church that stands firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In summary, a life worthy of the gospel is modeled and measured by living in holy unity with other Christians. And I think sometimes we miss this in our English translation of the Bible. When Paul says, standing firm in one spirit, you having one mind, you striving side by side for the faith, it's not a singular you. It's, it's you all. Or where I come from in the South, it's y'all. Or if you like really bad grammar, it's y'all all. Paul is referring to the church. It's a community. He's emphasizing the primacy of unity to stand firm against the attacks of the church in that day. The, the church is suffering. And I'm taking time to rehash these verses we visited last week because they're critical to chapter 2, verse 1. And one last thing to notice here. Look at the strong language Paul uses in verse 27 and 28. Stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side. Standing firm and striving are not casual approaches to fellowship with other believers. The imagery of standing firm, I get this view of like playing the old game of Red Rover. I don't know if you've ever played that game. I may be outlawed today. Uh, where your arms are locked to create an impenetrable wall. This is a united, unwavering front that Paul's talking about. It's a front that, not, that must not be breached for the sake of the gospel in the glory of Christ. That is the importance of unity that Paul's talking about. It's worth striving for, standing firm for, fighting for. And we don't need to be fooled here. It's the very aim of the enemy to attack the church, to attack our church by creating fissures and cracks in the wall of unity. Jesus acknowledges the significance of unity throughout the scriptures. In Mark 3.25, he says, and if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. When we consider the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17, he prays for the unity of the blood-bought church. This unity in verse 27 of chapter 1 is what Paul is referencing when he refers to therefore in chapter 2. So in the next two verses, uh, it's going to emphasize, Paul's going to emphasize the importance of unity among believers. Before we get to what unity looks like, Paul offers in the first verse, uh, for first four verses, the reasons for unity. Why is unity so important? Why should we focus on unity? And in following therefore, or then, or so, in all of your transition, translations of your Bible, you see the word if. 
if, uh, if there is encouragement, if there is consolation or comfort, if there is fellowship, if any, in, any affection. Paul's not suggesting that you may have experienced any one of these four things as a believer. This if is called a first-class conditional clause. Now, hang in there with me for a second, okay? In the Greek, what Paul is saying and what he's clarifying, what he means is he's not saying you might have experienced these things. The first-class conditional clause is actually a because you have experienced these things, since you have experienced, experienced these things. In other words, each of these four statements that follow, that Paul's referring to, they're present realities for you and I. We have experienced these things. They're not experiences for us to attain to in Christ. They're the experiences we all receive as a result of being in Christ. In some ways, they're a litmus test for us. We should be experiencing these things. We have these things available to us. Let's look at this first reality statement that Paul makes. Because you are in Christ, you have experienced the consolation, the encouragement and comfort that comes from being found in him. This isn't an intellectual reality. It's a supernatural reality. Believers are rescued from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Where there was once guilt and shame, there is now hope and righteousness. Where judgment and condemnation await us, there is now forgiveness and freedom. Paul begins that a call to unity, a call to obedience, first begins with remembering the reality of the gospel, with all that it entails and means to be in Christ. A common application we need to remember when we struggle with unity is that none of us deserve forgiveness, that none of us deserves to be in Christ. And as a result of the gospel, the glorious gospel, we give our lives to obeying these words of Christ. Look at the second motivator Paul offers here, where he says, because you have comfort from love. Or fleshed out, it would mean because you have experienced the comfort that comes from being loved by Christ. There is comfort in this life and the life to come because we are loved by Christ. The word here is agape in the Greek, agape love. This is a heavenly, a divine love that is marked by the sacrifice of Jesus. This is an intense love. As one Greek lexicon explains, it is a love with deep respect, which often goes along with admiration and, and can become adoration. This is an intense, deep, rich, supernatural love that comes from God. The evidence of this love is Christ buying his people with his blood. Notice, this love that saves and secures provides comfort for us as believers. It's as though Paul is saying, because you have comfort from being loved by Christ, go and pursue unity. The best example of this is Matthew 9.36, where Jesus says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see it? We are the sheep with whom God has laid his life down for. We have been rescued by him, for him, when we were destined for the slaughter. The word for compassion here is deep affection from the bowels, an inward, overflowing compassion. 
This is the love of Christ, which we have received we've known and we've experienced. As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he refers to this love as the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As he wrote to the church at Corinth, this is the love of Christ that controls and compels. This love that we have in the gospel results not in stagnation, but calls us, his people, to response. And as we've seen in this letter from Paul, he loves this church at Philippi. He's not coming with rebuke. His tone is a gentle, compassionate exhortation. He's encouraging them to keep going, to keep fighting for unity. If we go back to chapter 1, we remember he thanked God in all remembrance of them as they were faithful fellow workers in the gospel. And as we consider our own posture and our own church, may the waves of Christ's love and compassion comfort, console, and compel us to preserve the unity of our church and in our context as we pursue humility together. Look at this third reminder that Paul offers where he states, because you have the fellowship of the Spirit. This word fellowship you've probably heard before, koinonia. It's the common bond they have through the Holy Spirit. The church has received both the gift and the seal of the Holy Spirit. They have been bound and bonded by him. Their thoughts, their desires, they're unified. Their worship is focused by the Spirit as they serve and worship Christ together. They have all tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They have experienced together through the Spirit God's mercy and kindness and humility. And as a result, Paul exhorts them to pursue this unity through humility. The final point Paul makes helps summarize what the, that, the, that the Philippians have tasted and seen, compassion and sympathy. The tender mercies of God through the gospel he preached. They knew that God had been merciful to them, had saved them. And in this letter, Paul is exhorting, encouraging, correcting, and molding the church in Philippi by reminding them of the supernatural and divine mercies of God in Christ. As I consider this passage in Paul's tone, I'm reminded of Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, which reads, Behold, the Lord God will come with his might, with his arms ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Paul is reminding the church at Philippi and reminding us that God tenderly, gently, and patiently draws us to love Him, serve Him, and obey Him. And I don't know about you, but I can focus so much sometimes on serving and obeying God that I forgot that He's tenderly and mercifully, tenderly and mercifully drawn me like a shepherd that gently leads nursing ewes. We see this in Scripture where there are times we need a strong exhortation and we even need a rebu rebuke. But there are times where we look at Scripture and we're reminded, and we need to be reminded, that we are deeply loved by God with a tender mercy that's so tender that our hearts of stone are melted like wax into, into malleable obedience. I think that's what the text is pointing us to today, to remind, remember the mercies of God in Christ. 
So we've made it through verse 1. Let's continue. So this fourfold reminder of the gospel, of the compassion of Christ, of the fellowship of the Spirit, of the tender mercies of God, the whole purpose of this is to compel you and I to unity with one another. This unity is exemplified through a church that has one mind, one spirit, intent on one purpose. This is personal. Paul is reminding them of how much he has loved them in hopes that they will respond to his love in return. He's asking them, he's pleading with them to fulfill his joy while he's in prison by pursuing unity as a church. The word for complete is used elsewhere in the New Testament to mean fill. It's as though Paul is asking the church to fill up his joy cup all the way through complete unity. It's like when my kids come after dinner and ask me to fill up their milk cups. If I get halfway or even two-thirds of the way, they'll stop and say, can you put a little more in? I think that's what Paul is asking for here. Here, fill up his joy to overflowing, to spilling over. That's what Paul is pleading for. He wants, he desires unity, that his joy may abound. And I've got to tell you, just like the Apostle Paul, church leaders delight as you pursue unity. There's nothing sweeter to come into a church and see and taste the unity and fellowship of believers. Consider your own households. Uh, what's the tone of your house if one person, maybe a child is miserable or a spouse is grumpy? Compare that to when your house has a unified front, when there's peace results in it results in the ability for the ch for the house or the church to focus on one purpose so paul goes on then to tell them what this true biblical unity will look like the first area of unity that paul emphasizes is unity of the mind the believers are to be as one com commentator says those who are thinking one thing well, how do we do that? How do we get on the same page with how we all think? Well, let me make a quick suggestion. If it's a matter of theology, we study God's Word together, we discuss, we research, and we seek out the wisdom of the leaders, the elders, God has appointed by His Spirit. If it's a matter of preference, we talk about it, and we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think there's probably 500 different things any given church throughout a week could make decisions on. I think Paul knows that. But and if you look at how verse 1 precedes verse 2, the reminder to us is that remembering the gospel precedes how we think as a group or how we make decisions as a group or even how the elders of a church make decisions. Right? Before we open our mouths and present our opinions and desires, we should remember the gospel and pursue unity of mind and thinking. Guess what? That means there will be times when our thinking will need to be changed. Our preferences will need to be adjusted. We will need to have a posture of sensitivity to God's Word, His Spirit, and the people in this church. Consider if you're in opposition this morning to the thinking of others in this church. Is your heart and your mind malleable to the teaching of God's words and the preferences of others? 
I think that's something we need to consider. There are things worth wrestling for, and there are other things we ought to submit to for the sake of unity. And I'm not, I'm not saying we wildly throw ourselves at any theology or doctrine. There are sound doctrines that men have died over that we are to unite under. But in matter of preference, we really ought to consider, is it promoting the unity of church, or is it promoting my own personal desires? So after the mind, Paul addresses the heart, as he says, they're to have one common love. The love that they have for one another is to be modeled by the love of Christ. It's an agape love, which means they're affectionate for one another. One another. This is one of the beauties of the church. There are not to be cliques in a church. There's no room for particular love. The church and the beauty of the church is a covenant membership whereby becoming a member of a church, you're committed to being loved and loving others with the love of Christ, no matter who they are or what their background is, no matter their age. Let me ask you something. How are you doing loving everyone in this church? Do you seek out conversation with everyone? Do you pursue relationships with others? Do you see how this is integral to the unity of the church? When you look at the book of Genesis, you can see the consequences of favoritism in the family. Consider as we studied the disunity in Isaac's household between Jacob and Esau. Loving one another equally, considering each member equally, is essential to unity. So we pursue every member of the church loving them, and in doing so, we model the love of Christ. Lastly, Paul asks that his joy may be made complete by the church being in full accord and of one mind. And the Greek here is tricky. A literal translation of full accord is one-souled. We're to be a one-souled people intent on the same purpose. This reminds me of David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18, where the scripture reads, As soon as he, referring to David, had finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and, and Jonathan loved him, David, as his own soul. Consider that for a moment. Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. And if you remember the life of David, who Jonathan, where Jonathan loved him, served him, and pr protected David throughout a tumultuous time before he became king. I think as the church, we are to be knit to one another's souls. And I like how the NASB translation says it here, intent on one purpose. That is how the church is preserved and protected. When we are united in love through the gospel of Jesus for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Look at the supernatural unity God has given his church so that the bride of Christ might be preserved for the bridegroom. Jesus, his son. This is why the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Christ. There is to be a unity that cannot be broken, where fissures cannot lead to cracks that fail. Knowing the love of Christ in the gospel, knowing the unity of the Spirit, Paul now gives specific direction to the church on how she is to model the humility of Christ. I think this is where Paul gets down to the brass tacks. He starts with, do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit or vain glory. Peter O'Brien, a theologian, comments on verse 3 by stating, the unity and harmony that Paul earnestly desires for his readers 
can be achieved only if they reject all forms of self-seeking and vainglory and instead humbly regard one another as more important than themselves. It's interesting to consider here the actions that follow this thinking, that Paul is wrestling now with the mind of the church at Philippi. He has reminded them that both their hearts, their hearts and minds of the gospel, and he's now challenging them to think about how they perceive themselves and others. In other words, are they constantly thinking about themselves and their own desires? Are we constantly thinking about ourselves and our own desires? This is a real challenge for us. We can get so focused on a personal area of ministry or desire that we're not considering the needs and lives of other people in the church. It's always best to approach people with a posture of grace, especially for those sweet, kind souls that serve in the nursery and in, in, in and out throughout the weeks. Paul's also going after the motives of our actions here. Even, even those of us that do seek to serve, we have to ask the question, why are we serving? Are we serving so that we can feel good about ourselves? Are we serving so that others would notice? Are we seeking an empty vainglory? That's what vainglory is. It's an, it's an empty glory. It's, it's a glory that produces nothing. It's of no value. When we serve, we must serve for the glory of Christ and the encouragement of the saints, our church. We serve Christ and we serve others for their sake, for the glory of Christ's sake. And Paul gives protective measures in the second half of verse 3, where he states, In the church and in life, we are to approach humility by counting others as more significant than ourselves. And we have to admit, this is tough. It's not easy to do. The passage doesn't say consider others better than yourselves after you've had your first cup of coffee. Consider others better than yourselves after they've been nice or kind to you. Paul is saying at all times, consider all people as more significant than you. You can't do that without remembering the gospel. We can't do that without the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that unless we're reminded of the kindness and mercy of God in Christ, and unless we've looked to Christ as his, at His example of humility. humility. The theme, again, of this passage is that humility produces unity as we behold Christ. We look to Him, both what He has done and what He is now doing as He rules and reigns, interceding as our High Priest. Paul tells us in verse 4 and 5 that we are to have the mind of Christ, to look to Him as the singular example of humility exemplified. In verse 4, we consider our others over ourselves as we look to the interest of others. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say here, abandon all of your own personal interests and desires. I think God gives gives us passions, desires, and dreams to pursue. However, the issue in the church of that day, and often in the church of our day, is that we do not equally consider the interest of others. Just like a mother and father must consider the needs of their whole family, all the children, their spouse, the dog, any other living creature you may have, we must all consider the whole needs of the church. The church is a whole entity. What are the needs that aren't being met, and where can we help support them? 
What do our brothers and sisters in Christ need? You see, I think we have this idea that if we are good at something or passionate about something in the church, then that's our swim lane. We don't need to worry about anything else. Let me just give you an example of this morning, a Sunday morning, of what it could potentially look like to serve the interest of others, to look to the interest of others. Well, we can start the night before by praying for the worship service with our families. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word tomorrow? Would you open opportunities for me to serve and encourage other church members? We could arrive early to church and look for opportunities to serve and help and meet needs, to have conversations, to seek out those that may be hurting, that need prayer and encouragement. When we gather together and sing, some of you may have heard me, I'm not a very good singer, but we can sing loudly and passionately to encourage the music team as well as other church members. It's encouraging to hear us gather together as saints to sing. It encourages the music team. The words we sang this morning, church, were so rich of theology. Like I said, it's almost as though we, we could have heard a sermon in that last song from Philippians 2. Let us sing to encourage one another. That's, you may not be a good singer. It's not about you. It's about others. It's about the person sitting next to you to encourage and warm their soul to worship Christ. We can listen attentively as the pastor preaches, and we can respond to the word. One thing we could do to serve others is talk about the word preached on the way home and what we got out of it, which means we have to pay attention so that we can get something out of it. We can shepherd our families to loving the word of God preached, to loving a worship service from the beginning prayer to the last prayer and benediction, to loving the members, to saying we're gonna, we, the reason our family stays a little late is that so that we can serve others and see the needs of the body. We can model that. That's how we pursue unity. That's how we encourage the saints. You see, this is a small example of approaching church where church is not about you. It's about the interest of others. It's about the body, the bride of Christ. When the elders of the church ask you to serve in the church, it's both about the needs of the church, but it's also for your soul, too. It's good for your soul and fashions and forms you in the image of Christ to do the things you may not prefer when you are challenged to consider the interests of others, when you, are considering the, when you learn to consider the rest of the body of Christ. This is how we're sanctified together through mutual humility and service that results in unity. Can you imagine a church where we're constantly going out of our way to meet the needs of other people? Do you see how this is countercultural? How it's a picture of the gospel? That that is actually what the world needs to see? A church that is not divisive or in dissension, but that is united for the sake of Christ, that's united for the betterment of others? They need to see a people genuinely committed to one another in love because they have been loved, because you have been loved by Christ. Don't you see how this is how the bride of Christ shows her love for the bridegroom? This is what makes Paul's joy complete, filled up to overflowing, when we love one another well with an intentional love. Let's look at the last six verses together. And my aim in these last six verses that this would be our motivation as we behold Christ. Let's consider his humiliation and his exaltation, how it calls and commands us to pursue humility for the sake of unity and ultimately the advancement of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to read. 
the last six verses here now. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed him the name which is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in the earth, in, or who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ in verse 5 to think like Christ, to behave like Christ, to consider Christ and how he came to die that we might live. To gaze upon Christ and to ponder his humility through humiliation and then his glorious ascension as our eternal hope. Notice that Paul says that we are to have this attitude or this mind among ourselves. This is not to be our individual mindset or attitude, but this is the mindset and attitude of us as a church. This is, this is the church's mindset. We all are to think this way. Not just the elders, the pastors, or those the most godly, but we're striving together in unity to have this mindset and this attitude of Christ. We're working together. We're seeking to remind each other of the humility of Christ and respond to it and restern, uh, return. Again, this is why we need each other. Why God has established His church as a necessary component to our holiness. We grow in our love for one another and for Christ in the context of a local church. So how does Christ model this, humi this humility? He comes down from his heavenly abode, and he dwells, he dwelt among us. He descended to reascend. And let's first consider looking at the humility of Christ, the descension of Christ. We must understand an essential theological truth as we approach verses 6 through 8. The incarnation and the humanity of Christ can be very difficult to understand in light of his deity. You see, we're dealing with rich theology known as the dual nature of Christ. How could he be both man and God? That is, how can he come and dwell with us, yet be God at the same time? R.C. Sproul, a late great pastor and theologian, refers to it this way. He is both truly God and truly man at the same time. But we must also understand that in coming down, Christ did not give up his deity as he took on humanity. One commentator explains this, that he maintained his divine nature while forgoing its privileges. Consider the cost of Christ. John 17, 5 des describes the status of Jesus before his in incarnation. He says in his high priestly prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He has with the Father and the Spirit complete glorification. He has equality with the Father. This is incredible to consider. Glory with the Father was then not something that he desired to grasp or lay hold of. The infinitely wise Son of God knew that the most satisfying, fulfilling decision he could make was submit to the will of the Father by giving up his life. 
That was it. Equality with God was not as desirable as obedience to the Father. It's incredible. He emptied himself. He poured himself out as a drink offering to the glory of the Father. This does again not mean that he gave up his deity. It means that he took the lowest form possible, the only form that could pay for our sins. This form was a slave. He became a slave. That's the only accurate translation in the Greek. The word is doulos. Some of your translations say a servant or a bondservant, but in the Greek it's slave. The Son of God who existed in eternal glory outside of space and time comes down into space and time in history and takes on flesh that He might be our Savior. And more than that, He became that slave, that suffering servant. Every minute of every day, He did not look to His own interest, but to the interest of the Father. And, in the, if, and if the depths of his descent were not yet low enough, he went yet deeper to the point where he hung on a Roman cross, cursed and rejected by men. He bled and died after ridicule and injustice. But more than that, he took on the sins of the world and drank the cup of God's wrath. And he drank it down to the very last drop. This is ultimate humility. And as he drank the, the cup in that great moment of despair, he didn't cry out judgment. He cried out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they've done. This is our Savior. Is this not enough love and motivation for us to give our lives away? The Son of God came from heaven and sought us. As we spit on him, as we nailed him to that tree, as he bears the full weight of God's wrath, Notice, He yet pursues us still. This is the glorious gospel. That's why we don't look to our own interests. That's why we give our lives in service to the Son. This is why we humble ourselves and pursue humility for the sake of unity. And this is why all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. He is the spotless Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, that takes away my sins and your sins and every sin of those who believe and trust in Him. This is why we model our lives in service and worship of His name, that His name might be proclaimed and known among the nations. Church, behold in this text, Christ crucified, who died that you might live and lived that you might die to yourself in your selfish desires. Christ died for a church that we might model his humility, that others might see him in us. But that's not the end of the gospel story, as the text shows us. For Christ did not die and remain in the grave. As he descended to the earth and suffered the wrath of God, he also ascended into glory. Verses 9 through 11 tell us that just as the Son glorified the Father by obedience to the point of death on a cross, now the Father has glorified his Son. He has highly exalted him. He has given him a name that is ex exceedingly above all names. His name is so high and lifted up that at the sound of his name on that great day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord of all the earth. The righteous one, the holy king, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords. Christ will be rightfully acknowledged for his suffering and his obedience to the Father. 
And it's in verse 10 that the tone of Paul's writing takes a turn. You see, up until verse 9, it's as though Paul has been pleading with these people, this church reminding them of the tender mercies of Christ. But not in verse 10. The day is approaching. The great day of judgment. All of creation in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. We will behold Christ in all of His majesty and glory, and they will worship Him by acknowledging Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, all that, and on that day, that great day, all of creation will bow before the King. And I submit to you, if we have not bowed to Him before that day, it will be too late. I think that's what Paul is telling us here. From Psalm 2 to Revelation 2, we read, The day is coming where Christ the righteous King will rule the nations with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. And on that day, if we are not found in His righteousness, covered by His blood, it will be too late. If you know you are not in Christ today, as the prophet Isaiah exhorts us in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Cry out for mercy that your knees may find a soft landing in this life rather than a hard landing in the next. May your tongue today be loosened to worship Him rather than forced at His majesty and glory on that great day. For those of us that are in Christ, verses 9 through 11 give us great hope. The truths of these verses stir our hearts as we long for that day. That will be a great and glorious day where we will finally worship together Christ as He deserves to be worshipped, and we will finally see Christ worshipped as He deserves to be worshipped. We long for, we hope for, we are excited for that day. This passage that we've read this morning and the day that we've considered reminds us that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. We're reminded as a church that Christ is worthy of our lives. We're reminded that in this life we await to see the King of Glory face to face. And as we wait, we respond in humility by pursuing unity as we face our gaze heavenward. Church, as we close our time this morning, I'm going to read the hymn, uh, one of the hymns that we're going to sing, and I hope that we sing it in unity this morning, in unity that Christ is King. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. As I pray, the music team will come up and we will be singing songs from our hymns this morning. Uh, we'll be in, in uh, number 126 and 143. I look forward to singing with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we know daily the glories of the Son who gave His life that He may purchase ours. Father, I pray for us as a church that in the years, decades, and perhaps even centuries to come, that this little church would love you, would love one another, and would forego preferences and personal desires to seek the interest of others. God, would others in our community see our love for one another, and in doing so, see our love for Christ. God, would you see this church, would you see the meditations of our heart, the actions of our day-to-day, -day, and Lord, would we be pleasing to you? God, preserve us, protect us. 
be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand and sing with us, this is number 126 in your hymnals. <laughs>